Board Rounds, episode number six. The moment you step foot on campus as a medical student, you are gearing up for one of the biggest tests you'll ever have to take, USMLE Step 1 or Comlex Level 1. The medical school headquarters and board vitals are going to help you prepare for your first board exam with questions, pearls of information, and guidance to make sure you have what it takes to score high and match into your specialty of choice. Welcome to Board Rounds, the podcast dedicated to you, the medical student, who has to start preparing for USMLE Step 1 or Comlex Level 1. I'm excited to finally dive in to some clinical information, the information that you need to know to maximize your score on those board tests. As always, I am joined by Dr. Andrea Paul from Board Vitals, the company that will help you with your board prep using their amazing QBank and software platform to help you maximize your score. Remember that you can save 15% off any of their QBank packages by using the promo code BOARDROUNDS at checkout. When you do use that coupon code, I get a small commission. So thank you for supporting me and checking out Board Rounds and checking out Board Vitals. Let's go ahead and dive in to our episode today, talking all about a six-year-old male with a murmur. Andrea, welcome back for some more Board Rounds. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm excited to get into some content. Obviously, USMLE, Comlex, these these first board tests are super content heavy. Later on, we get into a little bit more clinical care. But right now, these tests really want us to know our content and want us to know it really well. So I'm excited to get into these to to help the the student listening kind of understand the types of questions that are being out there and then hopefully break down some of the content so they get the answers right as well. Yeah, definitely. So we're going to start with cardiac and some cardiac questions and content. Is there a particular reason that we're starting with cardiac? Is cardiac covered more on these tests or do you have any data that breaks down subject matter on these tests? Uh, so, mostly, you know, it's mostly anecdotal data with students you know, expressing what they felt was more, you know, commonly tested. And so, for some reason, cardiac, especially in cardiac physiology, seems to come up a lot in both the COMLEX and the USMLE. So I thought that would be a great place to start. Yeah. And well, the the heart kind of feeds everything. And of course, the, the neurologists out there think that the heart's only there to bring blood to the heart. And the, the orthopods are like, oh, the blood, the heart's only there to bring <laughs> blood to the bones. And so everybody has their own joke. But <laughs> the heart is obviously very important, the whole cardiovascular system. So we have a question pulled from Board Vitals Q Bank. So why don't you go ahead and read that first question? Okay. All right. So this one is a 60-year-old male who's undergoing evaluation for a heart murmur. He's asymptomatic and his physician discovers a holosystolic murmur at the cardiac apex. The frequency of that murmur is increased when he expires and an echo confirms that uh, there is something going on. There is a diagnosis to be found. So it's uh, the question component says, compared to a normal patient, which of the following hemodynamic changes would be most likely present? So this is one of those multi kind of step where you have to f- figure out from the murmur and, you know, it's confirming there is something. So you can look at the murmur and sort of decide what you think the diagnosis is. And then from there, step 
one step further and say what physiologic effect that would have. Yeah. So it's not as easy as like, oh, I know that murmur. It's like, oh, right. shoot. Like what, what <laughs> happens because of that now? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So breaking down the question, right? We have holosystolic. So we, first of all, we have to know the types of murmurs that we have out there. And oh, murmurs for me, what that was a long time ago. It was like 12, 13 years ago when we learned murmurs in med school for me. And so I, I don't remember my murmurs, not something that, uh, <laughs> It stays in my head now as a podcaster. So can you break down some of these murmurs for us? Right. So, yes, of course. So holosystolic just refers to the fact that it's present during the entire systole phase. And so, so you will have some that fade off before the end or would maybe only be there like a click or a sound at the beginning of systole. So holosystolic refers to sound that's present the entire time. And so that can be something that they say sort of stays uh, like a motoric sound. So one consistent sound for all of systole or maybe something that starts at an increased volume and decreases or even sort of the, you know, hill shaped where it increases and then decreases, but less through all of systole. So those are sort of the different options that you, you're left with when you know it's a systolic, holosystolic murmur. Okay, so even with the like crescendo, decrescendo, those can be holosystolic as well. Correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's you know it allows you to sort of narrow down. You know, it's systolic, not diastolic, and then you know that it's present. You know, for all of all of the systole phase. So that that leaves you with you know a couple of options. And so, the other part of the question that you want to pay attention to, if it does Location. tell you, is is the exactly is where. Yeah where you're hearing it. Um, in this case, they're saying it's at the cardiac apex. So it's another little hint. You won't always have that. And we've heard from a lot of students that often they won't get both components. They have to sort of look at other factors, um, the patient's age or, or other components uh, to the question to determine what exactly is causing the murmur. But in this case, we're lucky and they're telling us where, where it's most uh, loudly heard. So we know it's right at the apex. Yeah. And so Apex tells us which valve potentially it's coming from, correct? Right. Okay. Yep, exactly. And so what does Apex tell us? Uh, so in this case, um, when you're hearing this holosystolic murmur at the cardiac apex, you immediately start to think of mitral mm -hmm. valve. And so when you're looking at, a lot of times you'll see sort of a, a diagram of you know, the chest and you're looking at the different areas where if you kind of can picture where the apex of the heart is and what would be causing the sound to shoot in that direction. If you're a visual kind of person like me, you can just, you can picture that mitral valve right there and the direction of flow, if that mitral valve weren't functioning properly, mm -hmm. would be right toward that apex of the heart. And so that would lead you, you know, to suspect a mitral regurgitation. The other, you know, the other thing that you can think of as mitral stenosis, but of course that's a diastolic. So although that's, um, you know, would be heard in a similar area that would be heard at a different time that, you know, makes sense to kind of help narrow it down. Yeah. So the stenosis would be the atriums emptying into the ventricles during diastole. So that's when you would hear that, correct? Correct. Yeah. All right. So it's all coming back to me. This is awesome. <laughs> and I, I, I love the kind of visual that you put in my head with the 
regurgitation shooting down towards the apex. And for me, that that seals the deal. I'm like, okay, so it's basically like the sound from that valve traveling to the apex and picturing that in my head to know that, okay, yeah, the mitral valve apex, that works. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then other, you know, other things to think of when you have mitral regurgitation is that it kind of fits with the patient. This is, you know, an older patient because the most common cause is, you know, rheumatic fever, you would expect it to be in someone that's, you know, around this age. So that fits. If the question had said something maybe about having an irregular pulse, uh, maybe, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, displaced apex or, a, you know, they call it a thrusting that would fit with mitral regurgitation as well. They don't go a lot into his clinical history um, they, other than saying he's asymptomatic. But in some cases, people will complain of, you know, palpitations or fatigue, uh, shortness of breath. And it can go as far as having, you know, signs of heart failure. So those would all still, you know, with the murmur and the location, those could all, any of those components in any combination could be present in the question and lead to the same answer in the end. Mm-hmm. And then I think, so this specific question, what we were talking about is not asking actually for the diagnosis. Yeah. And so we're only, we're <laughs> where's, only where's my mitral regurge answer? I'm like, no, it's not there. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually asking. So the, the options in this question are whether you'd have increased afterload, decreased preload, increased ejection fraction, decreased ejection fraction or decreased contractility. And so this, you know, this really takes it one step further and you really have to understand what all of those components mean. But before we jump into the answers real quick, there's one more part of the question that I think may trip up students reading it. And if they're not familiar with expiration versus inspiration, you you specifically, the the question stem specifically said during expiration, this Mm -hmm. was heard most loudly. What does that effect have on the regurgitation? So that would, that it all has to do with obviously the pressure caused in the thorax by you know whether the lungs are expanding or compressing. And so in this case, in some cases clinically, um, not always, but mitral regurgitation would be more easily heard during expiration. It's not going to be something I think they would always put in the question because this this specific murmur isn't one that, you know, is always so strongly correlated, but I think, you know, something to keep in mind for sure. Okay. So expiration is more positive pressure down on the heart. So more pressure on the ventricle, potentially easier to, to have a little bit more regurgitation potentially Mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah. But yeah, potentially. Yeah. Okay. All right. So back to the answers. Oh yeah. So, so Afterload and preload, I mean, it's important to know, not for just for this question, but for any cardiac physiology question, understanding what those mean, as well as ejection fraction, which is one of the other options. So, afterload is the pressure against which the heart is working to eject blood during systole. So, you know, this is a good, great example with mitral regurgitation. It's a systolic murmur, so this is when we're hearing it, and it's uh, it's the components of the or the answer options asking about afterload is whether would, there would be increased afterload. And so in this case, that would not be correct because we're having regurgitation. And so if you want to, for example, look at, you know, the Starling curve, you would see that afterload does have an effect on that 
stroke volume, and that's because uh, the maximum pressure the heart can develop becomes smaller when there's lower volume inside the ventricle, if that makes sense. Mm. And so in this case, when you're having, you know, you're picturing, if you're kind of picturing that mitral valve and you're thinking about during this contractile phase, systolic phase of the heart, this afterload is the pressure that's kind of coming on the way, on the blood's way out of the heart. And so as you're, as you're contracting, that mitral valve cannot hold itself shut and you're having that regurgitation coming back in the opposite direction mm-hmm. from the, the direction that the afterload is bound, if that makes, makes sense. <laughs> Trying to figure out the best way to explain it without being able to draw a picture here. Yeah, this is a, a new skill that you'll learn to develop is how to how to describe yes. all these yeah. in a podcast form. But it yeah. but it is doable. I I, I want to just throw that, this out there because it's really a fun explanation of this. Is there is a very popular podcast all about carving wooden rowboats. So if somebody can do it about wooden rowboats, we can do it about yes. ejection <laughs> fraction will, and afterload preload. Try. <laughs> And so, so that's that's afterload in a nutshell. Preload is basically the pressure, the filling pressure of the heart at the end of diastole. So once it's filled, the left atrial pressure at the end of diastole, that is your preload. And so we mentioned Starling's Law. So that's something that help, kind of helps when I'm thinking about these things. And that just states that the heart is going to eject a greater volume if it is filled to a greater volume at the end of diastole. And so... You know, that relationship obviously can be modified by contractility and the afterload, and that, that will affect, you know, what, what ends up resulting. And that ejection fraction was just the percentage of the blood left in the ventricle after a contraction. So if you're, you have a systole, those ventricles contract, and 50% remains, then that's your ejection fraction is, you know, 50% and so on. And so, you know, I think you can look at right away at this question, which is asking about what we've figured out now is mitral regurgitation. And you can, you know, you can start to cross out a lot of these options. Is it affecting ejection fraction? Is it increasing your afterload? Is it decreasing your preload? Is it increasing your ejection fraction? Or is it decreasing your contractility? And so, so after we've sort of determined that it is mitral regurgitation, you can look at, you know, in a case like this, you would look at, they say they did an echocardiogram. So would, that would likely have shown that this patient, since he has no symptoms, probably compensating for this. It's probably a chronic, he has a chronic, you know, chronic disease. That's why he's not coming in with any specific symptoms other than this, you know, murmur that someone heard. And so, most likely, he has dilated his left atrium, left ventricle to compensate. So, most patients with chronic mitral regurg will have that. And then you have this retrograde flow that's happening over that mitral valve. So, you would probably, with the compensa- if with his compensation, because he's asymptomatic, you would probably see a slight decrease um, in his afterload just because of the resistance across that valve. But the most likely, and this is one of those words asking, <laughs> most likely um, you would see an increased ejection fraction. Mm-hmm. Okay. So all about ejection fraction on this one. The I want to go back to f- the Frank Starling's law real quick, uh, Frank Starling law. And the 
that statement that more blood is going to come out when there's more blood in the ventricle prior to systole. Is that due, and this is because I want to try to understand and have the student understand, is that just, and this is the exercise physiology in me from my undergrad, is that just due to the muscle fibers being at their most ideal length for contraction? Or is there something else at play? So basically, so if you think about the the volume at the heart of the heart at the end of that diastole phase, mm-hmm. so that's going to give you a filling pressure, if that makes sense. Yep. And so that pressure, filling pressure, that's basically the preload. And that, if you, you kind of plotted it out, you would see that if you have that increased volume and pressure of blood in there to start with, that's of course going to lead to, you know, increased, leads to increased volume systole and increased, you know, this is, you know, it's obviously affected um, and modified by contractility and afterload as well, but you will, it's just sort of a, a volume and pressure play yeah. and less to do, I think, with the actual um, muscle fibers. Muscle fibers. Okay. I'm almost thinking like, is this a potential energy stored in a spring kind of thing with the more that's in there, that's, the ventricles are just ready to get it all out. And if there's not enough, then they're like, ah, no, we don't have to work hard today. Yeah, I mean, I, it would make sense in a, you know, a healthy heart, I think. But I think, you know, if you look overall, I mean, the, you know, the whole spectrum of, of um, different clinical cases you can see, I think it mostly just comes down to volume and pressure. Yeah, yeah. And especially with the, the compensatory mechanisms of having a lot of dilation, then, then things aren't working as well as they should anyway. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And then... I think this this question is great because it brings up not just all the different types of murmurs that you have to kind of run through, but it gives you all the different scenarios to think through for all the different murmurs as well. And so, you know, you you almost have to look through each of these options and think, okay, well, would so, so we know it's mitral regurgitation. So, like, let's look at the first option, which is increased afterload. So, could that be the case? And then you think, okay, well, there's retrograde flow across that mitral valve so what would that do to that afterload so you know then that leads you to realize okay well afterload is after the you know after the ventricle and so obviously if there's blood flowing in the opposite direction you definitely wouldn't have an increased afterload because you have blood going Mm -hmm. the wrong way if that makes sense and so you know, a lot of it, if you just think through where is blood flowing during what phase of the cardiac cycle, you can almost, uh, you know, kind of figure out which answers you can Im- immediately eliminate. Yeah. And so so that's kind of the nice thing about cardiac physiology, I guess, is once you sort of can think through each of the different causes of a murmur and think about afterload and preload in each one, it's something you, you probably won't forget because you've kind of made sense of it not just memorized it. Yeah, and I think this one, the cardiac physiology, I think would be potentially easier for someone who has that visual mind and can and can picture the the left atria and left ventricle working together and where blood is flowing and, and where all the valves are. But for somebody who who isn't that sort of visual thinker, do you think it would make sense at the start of taking their test for something like cardiac physiology to, to draw a quick heart with some squares as the, as the chambers and arrows and just to get it out of their head so that they can then reference that 
on these questions so they don't have to try to imagine it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think drawing, you know, drawing the, a picture of the chest, putting the spots on, okay, here's where you would hear which murmur and having that sort of memorized. And then, you know, there are all kinds of mnemonics for the different murmurs as well to know, you know, which sound during which phase kind of uh, leads you to, you know, whether it's aortic stenosis or mitral regurgitation, aortic regurgitation, mitral stenosis, et cetera. So definitely if you, if you're someone who kind of had a more memorization way of, of uh, figuring these out, then that's something you could quickly jot down for sure and um, just have them at the ready. All right. Is there anything else we need to know about this question and, and our answer choices? No. I mean, obviously you'd want to think about causes. So we talked about mitral regurg with, you know, rheumatic fever. That would be, you know, something that can come to mind that can also cause, you know, aortic stenosis as well. And then... Could a you know, potential like third removed question be like, what treatment was missed when this person was in their their teenage years? Definitely. Or what, you know, or the, a side effect of the, what could have treated this person as a child or, you know, they can go all kinds of directions from here. So I think if you know the basics and you know how to recognize mental regurg and understand the physiology behind it, you know, you, you'll be able to lead yourself to any of those types of, you know, types of questions. And so, you know, an understanding definitely of the causes of any of these murmurs is important. Um, knowing the signs, if there are sort of any really common, like if you think about aortic stenosis, for example, that slow rising pulse, that's going to be in the question almost definitely, because that's sort of one of those really unique cardinal signs of aortic stenosis or, mm -hmm. you know, the, or the opposite, the collapsing pulse and aortic regurgitation. And mm -hmm. so having, you know, knowing some of those sort of clinical sign buzzwords, it's super helpful in these types of questions as well. All right, there you have it. These are going to be fun for me, trying to remember all of my medical knowledge from a long time ago. I was a first-year medical student in 2005, so this is all, all old information for me. So hopefully it will be helpful for you as you are going through your process. Again, remember, check out Board Vitals and use the promo code BOARDROUNDS to save 15% off of any of their QBank purchases. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on... Board rounds.